welcome to the Beltway Outsiders podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor at places like the Dispatch, Arc Digital, and elsewhere, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them now for this or any episode. Finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it would be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave those reviews. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I look forward to reading them. In the first segment of this week's show, I'm going to cover the latest updates on the presidential election. We'll hit the numbers, talk through where things stand, and also what to expect for this week and moving forward. In the next segment, we're going to talk through the latest numbers on the coronavirus, as well as a new study that suggests there is a second path towards immunity for this virus. Then that's aside from where you just get it or you get a vaccination from the virus. There is potentially a second path forward. And then after that, we'll wrap up with this week's light item with that deals with the very exciting kickoff of football this week. So that's the agenda for this week's show, and we'll jump right in. So we're now 50 days out from the 2020 general election, and I broke this up initially at the 100-day mark into quarters, so right now the second quarter is over. There are two more to go. You can take the start of the NFL season as your halftime reprieve from politics. So 50 days left means that there are less than two months to go, and it means the media hits are going to come in harder and faster. The so-called October surprise that you hear people refer to, that's migrated more and more over the years, more towards September before the debates are held. And that's because people vote earlier now than ever before. They vote before the debates. That's why the Bob Woodward book that's coming out, that's why it was launched here in early on in September. It's why Michael Cohen's book was released now. And it's why the Atlantic's article by Jeffrey Goldberg came out now claiming that Trump said awful things about American troops. That doesn't negate the truthfulness of any of these stories or these books, but it does explain why they came out now as opposed to any other point in time. Right now, if you're wanting to drop a very large political story on a candidate, this is the time that you do it to have, at least in theory, the greatest impact. And as an aside, we really should think about moving the debates before voting starts. And it just makes more sense to move them because they make less sense if people are already in the middle of voting and you're just then beginning to hold those debates. So we're going to come back to this in a moment because I want to talk about all the people who actually are voting right now. According to the ELECT project, using only information from states that report this information publicly, right now, already around 22,774 people have cast ballots. Right now, already, you know, it's it's early on in September, and you already have close to 23,000 people who have cast ballots, and they are coming from the states of Florida, Illinois, North Carolina, and South Carolina. Uh, 
The Elex project also estimates that voters have requested a total of 57.2 million mail-in or absentee ballots across 20 different states. And these are just the states that report these numbers publicly. Most states don't report this, but there are 20 of them that do. So that doesn't mean all these 57 million people will actually be casting these votes, but it does tell you who is requesting the and in what state they're requesting them in. So it does look like we're seeing a higher number of people request ballots overall compared to prior elections. So with all these requests coming in, with these early votes coming in, I'd reiterate the point that I just made, which is we need to move these presidential debates. The first one, the first debate for this election, isn't going to be held until September 29th. And every day we have more ballots rolling in. Every day we have people getting their ballots and making decisions on who they're going to vote for. Where these debates fall, they're behind where the states are on when it comes to voting. You have so many states involved with early voting and mail-in voting now that things need to be shifted back. And frankly, it wouldn't be a bad idea just to shake up the entire debate process overall, if we're being honest. It's an outdated, useless feature that's a relic of the three television channel era. This is where, you know, journalists have too much power over this overall, too, because they want to be there to make a show that they're there representing their industry, asking the questions to the candidates. And really, at this point, these debates are a disservice because they are just a performative aspect of the part of running for president. We don't really usually learn that much, and it's been a while since anyone has quote-unquote won these debates and also gone on to win the election. If you remember back just in 2016, most everyone thought that Donald Trump lost all three of the debates, and most people would have said that Mike Pence lost his vice presidential debate. I'm willing to bet the same thing is going to be said after the next three or four debates as well. People will say that Joe Biden won those debates because, generally speaking, Donald Trump is not a debater. That is not his skill. So I would like to see us return more towards a full-on Lincoln-Douglas debate format. And these wouldn't take up even a full hour, even if you just did them. And you could you could extend them into other topics if you wanted to, but it would be a debate between the candidates. You wouldn't need journalists. And the debates would take on a more organic flow with the candidates and politicians. They would be debating each other, taking on their ideas, taking on each other, instead of just looking to score cheap TV buzz lines. Because that's when you talk about debate prep right now in the modern era of these presidential debates, you're not talking about being well-informed on all the topics or the issues. What you're really preparing for is, how do I work in the campaign platform into every question? How do I avoid answering a tough question? And how do I get in the buzz line, the zingers that will maybe go viral and everyone repeats them over and over and over again? That's the essence of prepping for debates now. They're not about substance, they're about performance. But, you know, I digress from that. That's a whole other hobby horse of mine. 
We're going to get back into the election here because this week I want to touch on the numbers and talk about the state of the race as we head into this next week. Now, last week featured many new hits, many new storylines like the Bob Woodward book, the Michael Cohen book, and I think we can expect more of that moving forward. But even though that was the big story, few people really ever read Bob Woodward's books. I've got it pre-ordered and we'll get it and we'll probably read through it eventually, but I'm not expecting many more news cycles to come out of this book unless there's something so outlandish that they purposely held it back to extend the life cycle of this book in the news. So that would be the only reason I would expect anything more out of this book. I suspect the virus part of it was the biggest thing, and that's why it came out first, to help pump up pre-orders. I wouldn't expect them to pull too many other big stories out of it after this. I would expect, however, new opposition hits against Donald Trump. That seems to be the rhythm that we've entered in here with the month of September, which is some new negative story hits each week that drives the news cycle for that week to try to keep Trump in these negative news cycles moving forward. And all journalists have to do after that is ask Joe Biden what he thinks about those news cycles. So that's a little bit where we are right now. There's little evidence, though, and we're going to get into this. There's little evidence that each one of these negative news cycles, that they are impacting the race or impacting where the candidates stand in the polls. All these really do is impact how people perceive the news cycle and whether one candidate is losing them or one candidate is winning them. So this is all about perceptions and media standing. The polling on this doesn't really bear out that it's impacting anything. If anything, Trump's numbers have been going up. Right now, in the real clear politics average, Joe Biden is leading Trump by 7.5 points, and he's sitting around 50.5% to Donald Trump's 43%. In the 538 poll averages, it's Biden up by 7.3 points over Trump. That would be 50.6% to 43.4%. So they're basically the same thing if you just move a few tenths of a point here or there. So for comparison at this point... Well, not at this point. At the end of the 2016 race, Donald Trump ended in the polls at 43.6%. And when he ended there, his trajectory was moving up at the time in those polls. And Hillary Clinton ended in those polls at 46.8%. So right now, the difference isn't where... Donald Trump stands. He has mostly regained his ground from the summers and is back to where he would be at the end of 2016. The difference here is the difference between Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton. Biden is trending higher than Clinton's numbers right now at the same point, about two to three points higher than where she was, which makes sense. She and Trump in 2016 were the two most historically disliked candidates this country has ever fielded. So the final vote percentage numbers in 2016 ended with Trump hitting 46.1% compared to Clinton's 48.2%. So the end goal for Trump is that he needs to get, he needs to go from his 43 and end up in real votes somewhere around the 46, the closer he can get to 47, the better. He needs to get in around that range to, on a national level, 
And again, the national popular vote is a joke. It's not a real thing. But if you're going to use that and tally it all up together, he does need to get somewhere in the vicinity of 45 to 46.5% to have a puncher's chance here in the national polls. And that's regardless of where Joe Biden is in these polls. This is where Trump needs to be. If he can hit those numbers nationally, he'll be sitting in a much better position in the swing states. Now, remember, last week I talked about Harry Enton's piece where he says that you can pretty much add about three points to Donald Trump's lead. Take the national poll where Trump is, add three points, and you get generically where he might be in some of these swing states. There's about a three-point gap where all these things are between the nationals and the swing states. So, that's why I say Trump needs to get about 45 to 46%. Because you can, if he's at a 45 to 46% nationally, you can add about three points to his lead in these swing states, and he's neck and neck with wherever Joe Biden happens to be. So, that's, you know, just a broad picture. That's where things need to be. You need to see Trump move up. He needs to bump his 43%, which is historically about where he's been. His historical position in his favorabilities is usually around 42%, give or take a few. Right now, he's a little above that at 43%, and so he needs to add two to three more points to that to get to where he needs to be by the end of November. So the question is, is can he do that? And can he convince either Republicans to come home to him? This is something I talked about last week, where you have all these Republican-leaning voters who don't identify as Republican and may identify more swingish in these polls, but in the end, they always come home. You need those people to come home. Or what Donald Trump needs to do is be able to boost non-college, educated, educated, working-class white voters in the Midwest to come out for him in higher numbers than before. If you look at these states, if you look at the demographics of them, there are far more of those kinds of voters who are out there that Trump can pull from in a pool who didn't vote in 2016 that he could bring into the electorate this time and boost his totals in places like Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. If he's able to do that, he will overcome whatever any gains that Joe Biden is able to make from 2016 to 2020 from Hillary Clinton's overall totals. So those are his two main paths, and he needs to close the gap a little bit in the national polls. Now remember, Donald Trump doesn't need to lead, nor is he looking to lead the national polls. The odds of that happening are very slim. It's slim to none that happens, and it's just because... When the polls, when you poll the full country, you're going to be bringing in an inordinate amount of people who are going to be coming from markets like California, New York, Chicago, places like that. You have to represent the full country, so these super city metro, metropolitan areas, they're going to tilt the polls a little bit, and it's not going to be a full representation of, of where these more purple states are going to sit. Donald Trump is uniquely unpopular in blue states, which drives down his national numbers more. That is the dynamic we've noticed here on the national level, and it impacts his capacity to move up in the national polls. So to that end, the big question this year is the same as last time. How good are the polls in these Midwest states? This is the question that Sean Trende asked in his latest piece for Real Clear Politics. 
In the Midwest, for example, polls tended in 2014, 2016, 2014, 2016, and 2018, they tended to overestimate Democratic support. If you go back to 2014 and 2016, they overestimated Democratic support by around five and a half points. That it, this doesn't mean that Democrats were losing these races. It just meant that the margins were smaller than what the polls suggested. There were very wide misses on what the polls said happened in places like Minnesota, Michigan, and Wisconsin, and what the end results are. And it's not that there were these shy Trump voters What was happening in these polls was that there was bad weighting in them. Because when you're polling these these different states, you're not just making random calls. You're trying to do what you estimate the electric will look like on election day. So you want to say, well, about 10% of these people are going to be X, another 20% are going to be Y, people are going to have this level of education for the most part, this percentage of people will have this, this people will have this other thing. And so you're trying to figure out what you think that's going to look like at the end of the election. And if you can get that right, more than likely than not, it's going to uh, result in a more accurate poll. So that's what's happening here. It's not that there are shy Trump voters. It's that pollsters have had a hard time estimating what the electric is going to look like in November. And there's been a lot of debates over this. There were a lot of misses in 2014. Basically, from 2014 through now, there have been a lot of misses. So... What Sean Trende did is he went back and he looked and said, okay, pollsters acknowledged all this in 2016, and that was the reason for some of these misses in the Midwest, and they said they were going to improve. Well, we've had one election since then. That's been 2018. So he went back and compared what happened in 2018 to the years previous to that to see whether or not this same effect was happening, because we have the polls and we have the results from 2018. And what he found is that there's still some Democratic bias in these Midwest polls, albeit it's smaller than prior years. So I mentioned five and a half points was basically what you would see in some of these previous years. In 2018, it still overestimated Democratic support by about 2.87 points. So close to three points, but a little under that. And remember, this was happening in the Midwest, and this was a blue wave year for Democrats. So they were winning some of these races. The margins were just thinner than what they expected. So here's what Sean Trende's piece concluded. Here were the two paragraphs of his conclusion. He said, The results are something of a mixed bag, but overall it isn't clear that the pollsters have really fixed the problem at all. While the bias towards Democrats was smaller in 2018 than in 2016, the bias overall was similar to what we saw in 2014, especially in the Midwest. If people remember, the polls in 2018 suggested that we should have today Democratic governors in Ohio, Iowa, Florida, and new Democratic senators in Indiana, Missouri, and Florida. Obviously, this did not come to pass. Moreover, almost all of the errors pointed the same way. Republicans overperformed the polls in every Midwestern state except for Minnesota in the Senate and Governor's race and the Wisconsin Senate race, none of which were particularly competitive. This is true, incidentally, across the time period. We see marginal Democratic overperformances in the Michigan and Minnesota Senate races in 2014, but otherwise pollsters have consistently underestimated Republican strength. 
Note that if we had added the competitive Senate race in North Dakota and the governor race in South Dakota in 2018, we'd also see Republican overperformance of a couple points. So what he's seeing here is uh, Republicans overperforming in 2018 in these key states by around two points. So that means potentially, if pollsters still have not fixed this and the same thing happens, and I wouldn't expect for this to happen, it would look different. It's going to look different from each race to race because past performance, as he would say in his piece later on, is not indicative of future prediction. So pollsters may have improved in 2020 over what happened in 2018 and beyond, but we don't know that. And we don't know if the same issues will, will pop up. And this could particularly come out if Donald Trump could pull in voters that the pollsters just can't see. And these would be these non-college white educated working class voters because they're the reason you use that classification is just because there are just a lion share of them in places like Wisconsin, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Those four states contain a ton of that type of voter. So that's why everyone is focused on them. And the reason that it's important for Trump is that Democrats have shown they still have a long ways to fall with those types of voters, whereas Republicans haven't shown that they are through growing with that kind of voter. Just as both parties are fighting over other demographics too, they're fighting over this one. So that is a key demographic in those states. So I would add this potential overperformance effect to the big list of red flags for this large Joe Biden lead. Democratic leads in Midwestern states are smaller in the polls Democrats are more likely to vote by mail-in or absentee ballots this year, which leads to much higher uh, ballot spoilage rates, and the polls could be underestimating the voters that Trump could pull in. So all these reasons, when you put them all together, and you know this doesn't include things like the riots uh, in L.A. County in California, we just had a person walk up to a police car and shoot that car with two police officers in it. They both survived, but they're both in the hospital right now. So you have events like that. You have the riots. You have the virus and just more stories of that kind percolating out here. So when you add all of this together, you have a very high level of uncertainty just because there's so many variables playing out right now that we don't know how they're going to resolve or how they won't resolve and how people will review them as they go in to vote. So the big million-dollar question is, Also, what is the other big unknown event that could pop up and impact this election? Because we know what we have. We don't know what we could have in the weeks to come. Because in 2008, John McCain had a slight lead heading into September. It was around a one and a half to two. I think it peaked at around 2.3 points in September. And And then out of the blue, the economy suddenly tanked. And this was when we had the 2008 recession. People will remember that recession being much longer than it is. But in the election, people really focused on it when it just tanked and hit, started hitting rock bottom that fall. And that's when you had, you know, all the bailouts. You had Bush meeting with Congress and all the, you know, the, these banking institutions. So that was all going into the fall, and that just tanked John McCain. McCain didn't know how to act with it, and Obama showed far more cool in those circumstances. In 2012, there was Hurricane Sandy, which boosted Obama. In 2016, we had 
just everything. But in the month of, of October specifically, everything surrounded the investigations of Hillary Clinton suddenly came into full bloom. And so that you had the investigations, you had the Benghazi hearings, you had the Comey letter. Everything was just this constant drum uh, drumbeat of a hit on Hillary Clinton. And what's notable about that is this happened after the Access Hollywood tape came out. Uh, you may not remember, but the Access Hollywood tape came out on October 7th, 2016. So it came out a little earlier that month. And then by the end of the month, it had faded into the ether because everything was just hounding Hillary Clinton by the end of that race. So those all those are the reasons that there is high uncertainty in our race today because we don't know if another event is going to come here. So that's why if you go and look at 538 and Nate Silver's model, he still gives Donald Trump, even with these numbers, a 25% chance of winning the race outright. There's just so much uncertainty. So all that being said, though, I must reiterate this point because the race is absolutely Joe Biden's to lose right now. If you held the election today, Donald Trump would lose. Straight up. He's broadly unpopular and doing very little to improve that standing. If Trump won with the numbers that he has right now, then that would be proof positive of God's existence for all you non-believers out there, because it would be a literal miracle. There's no polling error that could describe a win right now. When I'm talking about all these, these various scenarios that could play out to Trump overperforming, that is him working up in the polls up until Election Day. It would not include the here and now. And this is not all that Trump is facing. The media hits, while bad right now, are going to amp up like never before over the coming weeks. Michael Bloomberg just announced that he's jumping back into this thing. The Washington Post and Politico are reporting that Bloomberg plans to spend $100 million in the state of Florida alone to help get Joe Biden elected. Now, what that effort looks like, no one really knows right now, and that is about 10% of what he spent on himself in the primaries, but that will or should have some kind of impact. Uh, the Politico report said that Biden's support among Hispanic voters is in double digits, yet remains relatively low for a Democrat who wants to carry the state, they're referring to Florida, according to surveys of Latinos in Florida and Miami. To that end, communicating with Hispanic voters will be the key part of Bloomberg's effort, which will primarily focus on digital and TV ads, according to a press release issued on behalf of his Independence USA political committee. So this is another large variable that's about to jump into the race of Florida and impact everything there. Now, what is that going to look like? Like the report said, no one really knows. I would expect some heavy Spanish language ads and more to help Biden's numbers there. Uh, the irony of this race is that Donald Trump right now could be cutting into Biden's lead among minorities, and Biden is cutting into Trump's lead among seniors and working class voters. In fact, in some polls, Biden even leads among seniors. So could these vote changes offset each other? They very well could. They might not. Who knows? There's just some really interesting things happening under the surface here apart from just these large leads. And so the reason that there's a freakout right now among Democrats is the Hispanic vote. It's they're looking at Trump's numbers that have been in some polls around in the 40% range, making him about as good with Hispanics as George W. Bush. 
And, you know, part of this, I think, is that Democrats just don't understand this group at all. They want to paint with a broad brush and say that, you know, all, quote unquote, Hispanics vote the same and are the same group. But that is just not true at all. They're really not a block contingent at all. It's, it's much better and more accurate to think of them as being from their home countries, as being more descriptive of how they vote than not. Because you can get Cubans and Venezuelans, for example, they vote radically different from immigrants that we get from Mexico. If you're from Cuba or Venezuela, you've seen some of these socialist reforms up front. So you're far more likely to be more conservative or libertarian than your friends from other countries who are not experiencing those types of things. And so that's just one example. There are a litany of other companies here that all have different views, and we lump them all in this large group of Hispanic, but it's not a very accurate way to put things. In Sean Trende's book, The Lost Majority, he wrote that at around 2011, 2012, it, it almost directly predicts Donald Trump's coalition in 2016. If you're into this type of thing, I highly recommend it. But he made a point in that book of noting that we're seeing more and more Hispanic voters show very little difference from the median white voter in America. And this means they could vote for either party, and ethnicity less has less to do with it than more like economic standing and things of that nature. Economics, education, things like that are more predictive than race. Another thing that's playing out here is that interracial marriages do a lot to break through these kinds of barriers. So there's a lot of stuff playing through there. Uh, But with all that, Democrats are freaking out right now that they're underperforming with this group compared to previous years. And it'll be interesting to see if these poll numbers hold or improve or if Bloomberg's money matters in the end. Bloomberg was able to spin himself into high standings in the polls and get into the baits, but couldn't do much otherwise. Florida in general, already gets hammered with money and ads on a regular basis. So I don't know if $100 million will move the needle or not, but we shall see. So that is the election update for this week. I'm going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll talk about the latest on the coronavirus. So let's run through the top numbers, and then we'll run through... A few interesting stories on the coronavirus, and then we'll hit this study. So overall, testing remains robust. We've tested almost 87 million people and are nearing that 100 million test mark. Pretty soon, the White House will be able to claim we've tested over 100 million people, which is just an astounding number compared to where we were just three months ago, halfway through this COVID-19 nightmare. Three months ago, on June 13th, we only tested 42 million people from the beginning of the year up until that point. In three months, we've almost doubled, doubled that. So we are testing at an astounding rate. There are an estimated 29,000, almost 30,000 people who are currently hospitalized, and that number is dropping like a rock. This is the lowest number in hospitalizations we've seen since the end of June, just as things were beginning to ramp up across the country. We could drop below that point soon, and if we do, we'll be seeing hospitalization numbers that we haven't seen since the early spring when this thing was first ramping up. When hospitalizations last dropped below this point, this is when we hit this other wave across all these states and saw everything climb back up again. So we could see lower hospitalization numbers in the next few weeks than we've seen in a very long time. 
So with that, the seven-day average on deaths is continuing to drop. Right now, it's back where it was in early July. It's in between 500 and 1,000 deaths a day, so around the 750 mark and continuing to fall. Deaths will probably continue to be elevated right now for a little bit while these hospitalizations continue to work their way through the system. And so hopefully it will drop down low, but until we work through the backlog of hospitalizations here, you you will see an elevated death rate for this time. So the percentage of tests coming back positive has returned to prior June all-time lows. Our lowest point in June was 4.3%, a number I keep referencing when we talk about this. And right now we have a positive rate of our tests of 4.8%. And that's according to Johns Hopkins University. So we have seen a dramatic improvement there. We peaked at around 85 8.7%, and now we have cut that almost in half. The R0 number, which tells us the transmission rate from one person to the next, continues to sit below 1. It is currently 0.96, which is roughly where it's been for several weeks now. So we are making improvements everywhere. The current model projections estimate that approximately 15.5% of the U.S. population has had the virus, and the upper and lower ranges of that are 11.3% to 20.7%. That means an estimated 37 to 68 million people have contracted the virus in some manner, and that's for everything from severe to asymptomatic, with the middle number of 15.5% meaning roughly 51 million people having the virus. So there's a wide band there, but when you start factoring how many people could be asymptomatic and just people we don't know about, the estimates are pretty high. A pretty sizable chunk of the population has had this virus. So those are the United States numbers, and they are unequivocally good across the board. There is really... Nothing bad that you can point out anywhere across the board. Case counts continue to drop. The daily number of new positive cases coming in continues to drop. Our testing is still pretty high. So with case counts dropping with high testing, that means we're seeing a lower infection rate across the United States. So that's the very good news on measurables that we know. The cautionary tale here is that we can look across the Atlantic and look at Europe, and they are in the middle of a second wave right now. Just unequivocally, we know they're in a second wave because case counts have climbed over there in several countries dramatically. We've seen places like France, Spain, the Czech Republic, and others. They are now weighing their options on lockdowns and other similar measures. We've also seen in Israel, while I know they're not in Europe, they are reimposing another three-week lockdown of some kind. I think the way theirs works, you can't go anywhere from more than 500 meters or so from your house. So it's a pretty tight lockdown. And so we're seeing in these countries that a second wave is possible and is rolling through right now. It doesn't appear that to be more deadly in these countries, it looks like we're better at treating it. It looks like it's going through a younger part of the population. So the death counts should be lower from these higher case counts they're seeing, but we don't know that for a fact right now. So that is our cautionary tale. A second wave can come if it hits. If it can hit your, any of these countries in Europe, it can also come here. The place in my mind, as I've said before, is still New York City on this front. They had the massive spike, and they continue to look good right now. 
But if you look at some other data, they, they haven't returned to normal life there like you had seen in a lot of these European countries. Uh, things like usage of public transit systems, those are still well below average, which makes it that make if you're not using public transit, it's harder for the virus to spread. And so New York did so little to contain the virus for so long that it spread extremely fast there. And so if they were to open back up and people were to start using these things again, there is the possibility that they see a second wave there. That's why it would be the place where I would expect to see one. The second place, and there'll be a prime candidate for a second wave, would be places like California and the Pacific Northwest, where wildfires are forcing people to evacuate out of their homes. So you just can't social distance when you're doing, when you're having to evacuate like this. So, for instance, in the state of Oregon, about 10% of the population of Oregon has had to evacuate their homes and go to places like cities to seek refuge because the wildfires there are so bad. And it is bad also in California, though they haven't seen that percentage of people have to evacuate. So the fires are throwing a very large wrench into these virus containment strategies. And, you know, that makes sense. You have to protect people on these things. But when people are evacuating, they're generally going towards the cities where there are more resources to accommodate them. So that means you're increasing the density of people living in these cities, which could make them prime areas for viral spread later on. Now, all of this, of course, is speculation. We may not see a second wave at all. Uh, the question, you know, it's an open question whether we see it or not. It's hard to fathom that right now just because of after all we've been through, but it's still a threat and you have to acknowledge it as a threat. What we're finishing up right now, generally across the United States, is the first wave of the virus. It's not a second wave. I know people feel like they've lived through a second wave with what happened in the summer, but that's not true at all. It was the first wave across all these states. And for the most part, we handled that well. It, if you look at a chart of what happened in a lot of these states, like Florida, Texas, Tennessee, and others, they very clearly flattened the curve as opposed to what happened in New York. So there's the good and the bad, but there is the possibility of a second wave. So that brings me to another thing I want to talk about today, which is a scientific study on immunity and COVID-19. And I'll link this study in the show notes if you'd like to read it. If you have a medical background, you'll probably find it interesting in particular. But in any event, this study was released on September 11th, 2020 on the JMA, JAMA network hosted by the American Medical Association. And the article is titled COVID-19 and the Path to Immunity. And what they do in this is that they talk through various immunological responses of the body to the virus. Now, as I've noticed, I mean, noticed, as I've noted on prior episodes of this podcast and in the newsletter, I believe, too, when you're looking at model projections, we've reached higher and higher levels of countrywide immunity to this virus just based on the numbers of people who have likely been infected. So that gives you a base level of protection. You have people who have had it, gotten over it, and now they're moving on with their life. And But that's not the only immunological response available to the human body. What this, and I keep calling it a study, it's really more of a report where they're talking through everything that they've learned. And what they note is that there's another path possible, and that's the immunity provided from other coronaviruses. And the study says, and I'm going to 
sort of cut through. There's some jargon sections I've had to cut through here to get to some of the main conclusions. But what it says in this key paragraph is the following. Substantial data now demonstrates the presence of pre-existing T-cell immunity to SARS-CoV-2 in blood donors either prior to the COVID-19 pandemic or, more recently, among those without infection. Memory CD4 plus T-cells are found in higher frequencies than are CD8 plus T-cells, and these likely represent responses induced by previous infection with other human endemic beta-coronaviruses known to cause the common cold. Future studies may determine if cross-reactive T-cells from previous coronavirus infections have been boosted with exposure to SARS-CoV-2. The biological implications of these findings will be significant if the pre-existing T-cells shape the immune repertoire to SARS-CoV-2 exposure and following vaccination as well as other influence. Overall, these data suggest T-cells are another level of population-level immunity against COVID-19. So, what they're saying here is that there are other strains of the coronavirus, which we already know. The coronavirus can cause anything from COVID-19, which we now know about, to the common cold. So what they're saying is that these other strains of coronavirus could be providing the human body with a leg up on developing immunity to COVID-19, that particular strain of the coronavirus. And this is especially true because we're finding people have an immunity to forms of the coronavirus, I mean, to COVID-19, without ever having it. So they're showing that they have these T-cells in their body, but they're not showing that they, they weren't even asymptomatic. They've never had it. So this suggests that the human body has encountered versions of the coronavirus where it has developed some kind of response to it that is close to what has happened with COVID-19. So, that means there's this possible second path forward on immunity. It suggests there also might be a broader swath of the human population that is immune to COVID-19 without ever having known it, which could explain why we've hit some people who have, you know, you get into these situations where some people get it and some don't, we don't really have an explanation as to why. Now, that could just be, you know, randomness and infection, or it could be that somebody has had a coronavirus, their body has gotten over it, and it has some sort of immunity there. So there's a lot of things that could play into there that explain what's happening. But if it's true, that means we do have these two pathways towards reaching herd immunity. There's the straightforward way of a vaccine, and then there's the protection offered from people who have had the coronavirus, or, you know, a a coronavirus-related sickness in the last year or so. And you read through the report, they heavily emphasize that you needed to have one of these within the last year to really have something that was effective. So when you combine those two things together, people have even more protection and a higher immunological response. So if this is true, it may also provide an explanation on why some people haven't gotten the virus. You've got these people walking around with it, and that could help them. So it, it could be a way where we could develop not just a vaccine to this specific strain of the coronavirus. We could develop a gen- general vaccine that goes after coronaviruses altogether, which wouldn't just impact this one. It could impact how we interact with future coronaviruses. So there are a lot of very interesting and potential bright futures ahead if we continue to explore this avenue. We could 
you know, shut down this avenue as a potential gateway to future viruses. Who knows? There, there, there's no telling what we could find out here. But if, you know, much weaker and more common strains of the coronavirus can help protect us, then maybe that could also impact how we develop vaccines and, you know, just so on and so forth. So if you're a vaccine researcher, this could potentially open up a, you know, wide path, a wide variety of, of options in your toolbox. You don't just have to rely on COVID-19. You can look at the coronavirus as a whole and look for ways to, you know, if you can't defeat it, we could look for ways just to weaken the impact of COVID-19 on the human body overall. So I'll, I'll link to this if you want to read through it. It's pretty interesting. Uh, and, you know, in between that study and the good news in the United States, the things, things are definitely looking up for the coronavirus. You, you know, keep in mind, you still have the possibility of a second wave coming to us, at least from Europe. So there's good news, there's cautionary tales, but really where we are as a country right now in the United States, things are mostly good. And it, the odds are we're going to have a vaccine or some version of a vaccine pretty soon. So if that's going around and we have a second, you know, possible way to get immunity, we could have, we could, we could get past this much faster than the experts have predicted. So that's the good news there on the coronavirus front. Hopefully we keep getting good news on this front after all we've gone through in the past six months. We can take one more break. When we get back, we'll hit this week's light item. So the light item for this week was super easy to figure out. Football is back. In the lead up to the league returning this week, several sites and podcasts were going back and you know, they were telling old stories about the league. But the best by far came from the Pick 6 podcast, who did an episode about the time in 1980, that 49ers quarterback Steve Berg, who at that time was starting over the then rookie Joe Montana, well, Steve Berg had laryngitis, and he couldn't call out the plays at the line of scrimmage. So to fix this, the coaches for the 49ers literally strapped a massive boombox speaker to Steve Berg's back and had a microphone going out to his helmet and so he then proceeded to bark out plays and changes to those plays at the line of scrimmage with that speaker strapped to his back. And you can see in the video where they show all this happening that Burke is sort of leaning his back one way, you know, to one side of the field and then to the other side of the field to make sure that everyone can hear these calls coming out. And when you look, you, you know, when he's scrambling, when he's at the line of scrimmage, there's just cl very clearly underneath his jersey, and I'm sure it was one of those tearaway jerseys from 1980, there's very clearly this massive box strapped underneath this, <laughs> underneath his jersey. He's running around with something there, and there's very clearly, because again, this is 1980, so there's this gigantic foam dot with a line leading back to the back of his helmet for the microphone. So there was apparently... No rule at the time that preventing this 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 strategy, and he's running around. There's even clips of him throwing touchdowns. He he's jumping up, throwing the ball into the end zone with this gigantic box sitting on his back. Apparently, at one point they were even using it as strategy. I think it was Bill Walsh. He he brought Berg over to the sideline. They were pretending like he was having problems with his speaker, and so they sent Joe Montana in for one play at the goal line and ran a scramble with Montana, and he went in and scored. And so they were using not only this speaker box to 
as a legitimate way to call out plays, they were using it to try to throw off the other team as well. So I've included a link to that story, the Pick 6 podcast. They interviewed one of the linemen who was there. It's just the craziest thing I've ever seen, and I did never heard of this story. This this is something that I feel like I should have known for all these years, but it was totally new to me this year regarding football. So overall, I enjoyed the first weekend of football back, and I'm looking forward to the Tennessee Titans kicking off this season in Denver. The Broncos have an astronomical, just ridiculous winning percentage in their first game of the year when they're at home. The altitude undoubtedly plays a role in all that, but the best part of the weekend for me so far when it comes to football being back, the Houston Texans lost, the Colts lost, and the rest of the day was entertaining. So hopefully, for my on my part, the Titans end up pulling off a win to cap off that. That will help put us at the first of the division with the Jacksonville Jaguars, who who somehow beat the Colts with Gardner Minshew and his uncle Rico mustache and hair. So hopefully, the Titans pull one out, and it will be a great start to this year's football season. So that's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information of the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DVonCI. You can look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning. So make sure to sign up before that, and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode.